everybody. Happy Monday. Thanks for being with us as we continue through 1 Timothy. We're grateful for you tuning in or listening later, whichever is the case. Um, we we move on to the third chapter of Timothy. And last week we had Timothy kind of having a discussion with, or Paul having a discussion with Timothy about households, essentially, or about society, maybe, in some sense, um, as well as the overlap with church. We continue that focus today as it narrows to church, and we move to leadership. And this chapter, or at least this part of the chapter, is broken down into two sections. We'll look um, maybe at the entire first one today. We'll see how far we get. But it's qualifications. It's interesting, Michael, that if, if you were going to have a conversation, if you can imagine an older pastor having a conversation with a younger pastor, giving them advice on church, advice on recruiting and selecting leaders would be of vital importance. And, and that's where Paul goes today. Paul shares some thoughts. I would even go so far as to say some instructions with Timothy about the kind of person that Timothy should be looking for to serve as a leader in the in the church community. Uh, actually, I think what we're about to jump into is in some ways more controversial than where we've been. Uh, obviously not in the the major sort of cultural uh, lens. I mean, we, we've spent a lot of time as church dealing with uh, late chapter two. But if you have any sort of time that you spent in a church leadership position, maybe you've served as an elder or maybe you've served as a deacon, maybe you've served on some committees and, you, and you've had some role in helping the larger church family, uh, then I think you will know that Every person in leadership, and that is especially true of pastors and, you know, here bishop or those who may be, um, you know, sort of at a different administrative level in the Christian order, uh, that all of these are, are humans, that they are human people. And so they are flawed, they have weaknesses, they, they too stand in need of forgiveness and repentance. And so in many ways, uh, this is a very, very challenging list, especially if you read it um, you know, just literally uh, right off the page, if you made this the specific sort of operating instructions of your church, it, it's not to say it's un- not doable, but it is to say that this is a very pointed, clear, strong language as to what that expectation should be. Yeah, and before we get into the text, two observations. The first won't surprise you if you were with us last week. The The leadership that Paul outlines here presupposes our conversation last week. And so there's not, this is all male language. This is all he, he, he. And the church, particularly the church that we live in, the Presbyterian church of the 21st century, has not been compelled to stay within that framework. And it's easy to read this and perhaps be a little upset that it lands there. But I would I would caution that instead of being too concerned with that, to try and listen to the broader lessons of what is called for in church leadership and what is helpful. Because the other thing I would observe about this list is it is quite likely that everything that is listed has a place that Paul has seen it go wrong somewhere. 
So every trait is probably a corrective to a place that it didn't work or there was a poor church leader. So let's jump in and we'll, we'll unpack some of this. The saying is sure, whoever aspires to the office of bishop desires a noble task. Let's just stop there, Michael, make sure we're all on the same page. Um, interestingly, the word aspire means to stretch out your hand, like to reach for. And bishop here literally means overseer. So th- this is a person who will oversee some of the work and ministry of others. And we're going to see qualifications of, of elders or deacons. These are people who are probably directly doing ministry. This bishop is likely a person overseeing or supervising those people. And um, that, that tells us a little something about the house church structure of Timothy's community. But it also says that this person is entrusted not only with practical leadership, but with structural leadership. And it, it isn't, it isn't interesting. There are some interesting differences in the way that the qualifications are listed. Uh, an interesting thing to note here, uh, my commentator points out uh, that here we have uh, this, this sort of office being described. Um, you both get the word overseer, but you can also uh, get this sense of um, elder or or leader. So, you know, for a Presbyterian uh, here, we we would sort of uh, feel a connection to this, the idea of those uh, lay people who are serving in a, a a real leadership position in the congregation. They are they're called, and they uh, you know Paul goes out of his way to make the case. Uh, right up to this point. It's actually a noble task. It's not something um, to be ashamed of if one desires to be in an office of leadership in the church. That, that's a good thing. And for all of the talk of humility that we've already had, uh, for all of the reality of recognizing that, that it's not about us and it's not about our own gain or our own prestige, you know, here, maybe it's in that context, a little surprising even here that what Paul ends up saying is it, it's a good thing to desire to be in a position where you oversee if that is done with a person with the right heart. And he's certainly going to have a list of uh, sort of a track record of a good character. And, you know, so that's a kind of an interesting tension here in the church. You know, obviously don't uh, don't seek your own vainglory on one hand. On the other hand, don't be afraid of desiring a position where you can contribute to the church family. Uh, it's one of those examples where scripture often is very nuanced. And when we slow down enough to see it, we can see that these things are all being held in this kind of delicate, delicate tension. And then Paul gives Timothy some thoughts on vetting those leaders on the kind of qualifications that they should bring to the task. So now, verse two, now a bishop must be above reproach, married only once, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an apt teacher, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. So that is a lot crammed into a sentence. And and let's kind of go phrase by phrase here. Above reproach means that they're honest, they're trustworthy, they can be trusted, they're, they are of good character, 
Um, th- they are genuine. Uh, this is the place that Paul starts. You know, of all these other things, he begins with that they have to be the kind of people that are genuine, that are authentic, that bring to the task a not only a good repu- reputation, but a deserved reputation. And it's interesting, I think, that that's the beginning word, Michael. Yeah, I mean, how often, Clint, is the news headlines as it relates to the church generally hmm. the exhibition of one of the church's leaders who is either behaving hypocritically or who has just simply you know, lapsed ethically. And so the idea that Paul starts here, I think it even makes sense in our experience that fundamentally there is something to be uh, valued in leadership that is not a front or a ploy, but rather leadership that is directly connected to one's character. And yeah. That's tricky. Yeah. And this isn't holier than thou. This no. is a person who's yeah. genuinely working to be faithful and again, a- above reproach. Then we get a- an interesting phrase. There's been some translation and some discussion on this one. Married only once. Some have read that. In fact, you can find it translated, the husband of one wife. Um, there was still in Paul's day uh, the occasional practice of having more than one wife. Um, it was waning by then, not terribly common, but still happening. The, the more likely explanation, at least many think it's more likely, is that married only once would certainly refer to um, not having been divorced, but also if one was widowed to stay unmarried. And, and Paul does say some things in other places of his writing where he sort of likes the idea that if a person is not married, it gives them an uh, an extra amount of time and energy to devote to their work to the church. He he doesn't really require that for people, but he does kind of celebrate that if someone finds themselves in a single status, it gives them a certain freedom and it it minimizes their obligations outside of their faith, outside of their church life. And so uh, likely this is a reference to something like that, married only once, not remarried and not divorced, as opposed to having only one. I think having only one wife would be presumed by Paul and nearly everybody else at that moment. So most likely this is that second interpretation. Yeah, and I think that it helps here. I'm I'm not going to dig in here because I think the context helps it as well. I think as we get through some of these other words, you're going to see there is a theme that links them together. I I think generally uh, Paul's not, he's not breaking substantial new ground here. He's not, this is not sort of like coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. I think there's a sense here in which uh, Paul's trying to make a case that a person should be uh, very stable a person of good character. And so I think we'll see that teased out. This is specific. I think it draws our attention because of its specificity. But if you see some of the descriptions that come after, I I think we see maybe at the end of this why it's included in the list. This one kind of gets recycled again in the list, but temperate has to do with the idea of even keeled, has to do with the idea of being fairly stable, being disciplined, uh, not you know, not flying off the handle, not being random, 
uh, of sort of bringing a, a settledness and evenness to the task so that that people know what to expect and I, you know this that's a good kind of trait uh sensible we move right you know right along there sensible that the person has some wisdom that a person has some what we might call common sense uh respectable that that they are a person worthy of respect that others could look at their life and see in it a, a measure of something that they admire. And, you know, it, it's interesting, Michael, these are certainly qualifications for leaders, but by virtue of being for leaders, they're also for everybody. Mm-hmm. So simultaneously, Paul is pointing out what we want of our leaders and giving us something to pursue as well. Yeah, we maybe don't talk about this uh, as much as I think we see hints to it in the New Testament. I, I think in some letters, it may be a little bit written sort of between the lines a little bit, but there does seem to be a common refrain for Paul that Christians should not stick out in society as being radically different. And if you know church history, some of the early claims about Christians are very uh, sort of extreme about what Christians uh, would do. Some of the rumors that were spread about what Christians believed um, were things that would make Christians socially, if not reprehensible, certainly uh, put them on the fringes of society. So it it appears that Paul, in a list like this, there's nothing here that's going to draw attention. There's nothing here that's going to draw the ire of the world. In fact, I think you can go back a few uh, words here in Timothy, and you can see once again where Paul's instructing, hey, uh, let's um, be a group of people praying for our leaders. Let's be a group of people who are are uh, positively contributing in the place where we've been planted. And once again, when I see this list, Clint, that this is what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of that person who is above reproach, uh, they're temperate, they're sensible, they're respectable, they're hospitable. These are all positive cultural cultural traits then as they are now. And this puts a good foot forward for those Christians who are seeking to evangelize, to share the good news. And uh, they're certainly not going to be putting blockades in between them and the people who they're trying to share it with. Right. And so we just get to the last couple of words here on the positive side of the list, hospitable and an apt teacher. The word hospitable means um, to be kind to strangers or to love outsiders. So they should be good to others. And an apt teacher, which I, th- I think shows the wisdom of Paul, that, that a leader needs to be a person who can share the faith, who can instruct, uh, who can present things in a way that gain some traction and gain a hearing for people. And then we finish the list, having listed what they should be, we now turn quickly to some things they should not be. And these are fairly self-explanatory. Not a drunkard, not violent, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. And it's amazing to me, in an ancient list, if you look at where pastors in you know, major stories have gotten themselves in trouble. Yep. Not drunkards, not quarrelsome, not loving money. Probably should be something about avoiding temptation, sexual temptation. But other than that, I mean, you've got some of the big 
you got some of the the big issues listed here. And Paul is, I think, wise in pointing out that some of these weaknesses are especially damaging and especially dangerous in the church. Yeah, this is where I do think it becomes a little, you know, nuanced here uh, because we had all the way back up at verse one, uh, whoever aspires to the office or reaches for the office desires a noble task. It's a noble thing to want to serve and to lead. Uh, yet we know from human experience how often in that aspiring humans are actually acting out of their own pride. They're, they're actually reaching out of a sense of their own arrogance and with their own hope and intention to achieve, to grab, uh, you know, they want attention or they want encouragement or they want all of the things that we might hope other people would do to fill this hole that's in our own hearts. And what I think is very, very wise about this list is it reminds us that fundamentally, uh, whoever leads and serves in the church needs to be mindful uh, that they too need to manage alcohol. They need to be careful of addictions that can, in our own day, come in so many different ways that they're so accessible. Um, this idea that that one must not be violent or one uh, must not love money. I mean, this, to your point, Clint, this list is perfectly calibrated to help Christian leaders recognize the ways in which they may be short-circuiting their noble task into a self-serving mm. task. And I've not uh, been doing this uh, as a as a vocation as long as you have, Clint, but I, I'll say, uh, I, you know, I have learned how many different sort of uh, camouflages these things might come in. And, you know, may, maybe for one person that's not drunkard, maybe that's love of money, whatever it is, I think it's very easy for Christian leaders to find themselves at the center and all the same for anyone who finds themselves living in the faith in any context. I, I think that this list is applicable. Yeah, I I think as a person who hangs around church, there's a tremendous amount of wisdom in this. And to some extent, this is just good leadership in any context. But I think particularly in the church, this is a very well thought out list and I think reflects a deep understanding of what it would take to lead well among Christian people, among a, a church community. Uh, we're a little long on time, so we'll break this one up into two. There's some interesting things tomorrow that it would be easy to read past, but they have had some wrinkles in history, some interpretation stuff. And so um, we'll give ourselves a little more time to dig into them tomorrow as we continue through this passage. So thanks for listening today, and I uh, hope you can be with us again. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone.